0: We're continuing our study of the story of Abraham from the book of Genesis. So you need your Bible and you need our study sheet. We're up to lesson six today. As we go through the story of Abraham, we're hearing about God's grace over and over in Abraham. We're hearing about Abraham's sin and doubts, but also about Abraham's faith in God's promises, which the Bible highlights, that he was a man of faith. So like always, let's start by reviewing a few of the things that we've talked about so far. We see that God comes and talks to Abraham multiple times, and each time He kind of talks to him about the same thing, but He always adds a little bit to it. So, if you've been coming each week, maybe you've noticed this: there's three chapters in the Bible that are all about God just coming and talking to Abraham—Genesis 12, and 15, and 17. And let's just put down what God tells Abraham each time, and we'll see how it progresses. So if you want to have your Bible open for this part, you can. So Genesis chapter 12 is the first time God comes to Abraham and makes him some promises. What does God tell him in Genesis 12, especially verses 2 and 3? You're going to be a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Mm -hmm. That's what he tells him. And then remember, this comes out of the blue. It doesn't seem like Abraham expected this. God, out of all the people of the world, God chose him and his family, and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. The whole world's going to be blessed through you. And he adds, then you should go to, go to Canaan. That's the land he's going to give you. Okay, that's chapter 12. So Abraham goes to Canaan. We hear some more stories about him. Chapter 15, God comes to Abraham again. And he makes the same promises about, you're going to be a great nation and everything, but he adds to them. So especially Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5, what does he add? Don't be afraid. You're going to have a son, and what about this son do we have? It's going to come from you, from your own body. So, when I said I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless the world through you, I'm not talking about through your household or through your servant or through people connected to you. You're going to have a son, that son's going to come from your own body, even though you're old. And I'm going to use him to bless the world. All right, so each time God comes, he adds a little bit of something. Some more things happen. Genesis chapter 17, God comes back again, makes the same promises. You're going to be a great nation can inherit the land, you're going to have a son, but he adds something. This was the, the cool new detail we heard last week. Genesis chapter 17 verses 15 and 16, what does God add about his son? Son. son? It's going to be Sarah's son. So remember we had the sad story of Abraham and, and Hagar and Sarah and they, they tried to take things in their own hands and God says it's not just going to be your son, it's going to be your and Sarah's son. And so each time God speaks to Abraham, he adds some more details. And finally, in that same chapter, he gives one more detail he hadn't heard yet. Verse 21. Your son's going to be born in the next year. In the next year. And so he adds even the time in this next year. Okay, So if you look at the story of Abraham, you see this. God, God gives Abraham more and more information as he goes along. You're going to be a great nation, Abraham. You're going to be a great nation because you yourself are going to have a son. And that son, it's going to be not just your son, but it's, it's going to be your and Sarah's son, and you've been waiting a long time, now it's going to be next year. So each time God comes, He shares a little more information. So the question we can ask is, why did God reveal His will to Abraham just one little bit at a time? Good. To give Abraham the opportunity to have faith. Exactly. Okay, now, I think our preference usually is to, well, why doesn't God just tell us everything right now? Okay, but if God were to tell us absolutely everything right now, what wouldn't that give us the chance to do? Have faith. To have faith. And trust. Okay, and so God gave Abraham exactly what he needed to know. Maybe not as much as he wanted to know, but he gave Abraham exactly as much as he needed to know. And he asked Abraham to trust him. Right? To trust in him for how his plans were going to work out. Does God do the same thing for us? He's he does. He does. One, one phrase that I read in something written by Martin Luther this summer was He said that God, God purposely hides some things so to leave room for faith. So God purposely leaves room for faith. Yeah so if there's something in your life right now that you say, you know, God could really tell me what's going to happen and that'd be nice, at least that's what we say right, that'd be nice but God doesn't tell us all that so that he leaves room for faith and ultimately this is what life as a Christian is about, we live by faith and so there's things that God doesn't tell us, at least not right now so that we trust him and that's a good thing any questions or comments about that? Abraham shows us it's a blessing to live by faith. Last time we talked about circumcision. And there's a whole chapter of the Bible talking about how God had this covenant of circumcision with Abraham. We're not going to cover all that today. If you were here last week. You can watch our Bible study online from last Sunday. But just two little points. Explain why circumcision was a blessing from God for Abraham and his descendants. It was part of this covenant. What's a covenant? Agreement. Agreement. This agreement with God. God made all these beautiful promises to Abraham. The son. The land. The great nation. The all nations being blessed through you. And what God did is he added this physical son. That Abraham, this this practice, circumcision, is going to connect you and your descendants to my promises. And that's a good thing it was a one-sided covenant it wasn't Abraham you have to do all of these things Abraham I'm going to do this for you and here's a sign that I'm going to keep my promise we mentioned last time that God gives us signs too what are physical things that God gives us as powerful proofs of his blessings The the sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper God doesn't just say, I love you, or I forgive you. He uses water, He uses bread and wine, He uses body and blood, and this is a good thing. And so while well, the practice of circumcision would have been painful for the people going through it, ultimately, it was a blessing. That this is connecting you with God's promises, and there's nothing better than being connected with God's promises. So why isn't circumcision necessary for Christians today? Jesus took care on the cross. Good. Two, two people said two excellent things. One is that these Old Testament signs and pictures all pointed ahead to Jesus. Right? God was setting apart the nation of Israel so that Jesus could come. Once Jesus came, they were all fulfilled. And second, somebody said, the Bible says we still need to be circumcised, but it talks a different way. You need to have your heart circumcised. You need to have your whole self Circumcised, and that's not cutting off a piece of flesh. How did that happen? Through baptism. Through baptism. Through baptism. When you were baptized, it was like your heart was circumcised. Your sinful flesh was cut off through the water of baptism. And so the New Testament tells us these Old Testament laws were fulfilled in Jesus, and God in the New Covenant, He gives us something even better. So he says, don't be circumcised on the eighth day, but be baptized and wash your sins away. Okay, I want to be a little careful. We talked about this last time, and somebody walked away from Bible class last time, and and they thought that we said, well, you know what, the Christians just decided it wasn't necessary. And we want to be careful about that, because this is exactly what Christians do today. Christians look at the Bible and they see something and they say, ah, that's not necessary. That's not how it works, right? Do we have the right to decide what in the Bible is necessary and what isn't? No. No, and so we should clarify that God, the Holy Spirit, made clear that the covenant of circumcision was not something that applied to New Testament believers. And God did that by appearing to Peter. He did that by what he appeared to to Paul and taught Paul. He did that through Jesus and his cross. And so it wasn't just that New Testament believers said, hey, we don't like this, let's stop. It was God made clear that the purpose of circumcision had been fulfilled. And now it's not about whether you've been circumcised, it's about faith in Jesus that makes a difference. Any questions about any of that? Ready to move on? Alright, today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18. So turn there. And I'll start just by reading Genesis chapter 18, the first two verses. Sounds like everybody's there. Genesis 18 verses 1 and 2. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. I say in so the that the first three words give us a clue of the importance of this story. How do they do that? The Lord appeared. Okay, now sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we just take this for granted. Well, you know God's around. He just does stuff. Okay, but just think about this. Abraham is sitting at the entrance of his tent. And who comes to him? God does. That would be pretty special, wouldn't it? If you're sitting on your front porch and, oh, here's the Lord coming to me, right? So there's something special about this story. The Lord himself is going to come to Abraham. It says that Abraham was at the great trees of Mamre, and we've heard about this before. That Abraham, it seems like this was his home base. Remember, he lived in a tent. He never had a house. But usually his tent was set up near the great trees of Mamre. That's where he lived. You know, sometimes I joke with you about how I'll just Google things. And I should make a disclaimer. It's not good to Google theology. Like, don't ask, you know, theological questions. Because Google won't tell you the right answers. But it can be helpful just to Google like names and places. So I, was, I never really looked this up. I just thought, I'll just Google the great trees of memory and see what happens. And if you Google the great trees of memory, do you know what shows up? The great trees of memory? A picture. Oh my gosh. This is the great tree of memory. Wow, wow. And I never looked into this before, but there actually is still a great tree of memory. Is it still alive? That people... Some people at least claim is still the same Great Tree of Memory right, that was alive during the days of Abraham. I'm sure that concrete steel is from Abraham's time. And so, yeah, so Abraham built up a steel structure to hold it up in place, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, and so I didn't know anything about this, but you can Google it. Great Tree of Memory, right, and this will show up. Now we have to think about this a little bit. Right? Do you remember when Abraham lived? 2000, 2000 BC. So how many years ago was that? 4,023. 4,023 plus years ago. I don't know so, this would be a very old tree, right? And uh, I don't know, you know what it all scientists say about the age of trees, but in Israel, there apparently is still, not multiple, but just one great tree of memory that at least some people say is the same tree that was there when Abraham was there. And just if you do a little bit of reading, you know when you Google it, uh, you'll hear different reports about people who, who've seen it. And I found it interesting, there was a man, of a, a Frankish bishop, which I think means he was from France, in the year 680, who traveled to Israel. And so you know, this is kind of cool, 680, that's a long time ago, right? About how many years ago would the year 680 be? I just like this, I'm going to remind you of math sometimes. It's good to know. 1,343 years ago? Wasn't that 680? Did I say that right? 1,343 years ago? That's a long time ago. But, how many years would 680 be after the time of Abraham? About 2,680. About 2,680. So he's still quite a long ways after Abraham, but a long time ago. So this guy goes to, to Israel... 1,300 years ago, and this is what he writes. He says, a mile to the north of the tombs, that would be Abraham's tomb, that have been described above is the very grassy and flowery hill of Mamre, looking toward Hebron, which lies to the south of it. This little mountain, which is called Mamre, has a level summit at the north side of which a great stone church has been built, In the right side of which, between the two walls of this great basilica, the oak of Mamre, wonderful to relate, stands rooted in the earth. It is also called the oak of Abraham because under it he once hospitably received the angels. So you hear what this guy is saying? So he goes to Israel in the year 680 and he goes to where Mamre is and he finds a big church. A big Christian church. And in the courtyard of the church, there is... This big tree. This big tree. So the tree that we see today must have been there at least in 680. Right? And he was told, this is the tree of Abraham. Where he received the angels. And he goes on. Saint Hieronymus. Do you know who that is? We would... Most people would call him Saint Jerome. Remember the name, Jerome? It was a famous church father named Jerome. St. Jerome elsewhere relates that this tree had existed from the beginning of the world to the reign of the Emperor Constantine, but he did not say that it had utterly perished. Perhaps because at that time, although the whole of that vast tree was not to be seen as it had been formerly, yet a spurious trunk still remained rooted in the ground, protected under the roof of the church, so St. Jerome, who lived about 300 years before this guy, said that the tree had been around since creation, which, I'm not sure that we would believe that, alright? But then this guy seems to be saying that at some point it seems like the tree died, but it wasn't actually dead, because part of the trunk still remained, the height of which was two men a trunk. From this wasted, spurious trunk, which had been cut on all sides by axes, small ships are carried to the different provinces of the world on account of the veneration and memory of that oak under which, as has been mentioned above, that famous notable visit of the angels was granted to the patriarch Abraham. So he says that in 680, BC, 680 AD, there, there wasn't a lot left of this tree, there was still a trunk. But what was happening to that trunk? It, it, should should it. it was being chipped up. And everybody wanted to go back to their home with a piece of the tree of Abraham. And so now this is what it looks like today. And so what I read, again, who knows what you can believe, that um, it seems like this tree has very old roots to it, and that it's kind of died, and then new shoots have grown up over time. And so, anyways, there's actually still a great oak of memory, which some people say is connected to Abraham. Yes, Karen? Of the back at the very beginning. Mm When Abraham saw the three, mm-hmm. was it God and angels? Excellent question. That's our, our going to be our next questions on the chain. So just hold that thought for a second. We have to ask, who is it that Abraham's actually talking to? Okay. We'll get to that in just okay, a how second. Do you know it was God. That's that's the question. Okay. We'll have to see as we read the story how he might have known it. Do you pronounce that like Mary? Yeah, how do you pronounce it? I always say, Mamry. This has an extra B in it. Yeah, I know, I know. That. That's where ancient places you can, can say them however you want to, kind of, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Especially as they get translated from language to language, different letters come in and out. And I've always said Mamry, but nobody's told me that that's right or wrong. And here he's got a B, Mamry. Our Bible doesn't have a B, it just says Mamry. Anyways... So there, at least, is a tree there still to this day, right? Um, if you go, don't chip off pieces of it. You <laughs> don't have to do that. Just take a picture and come back. Here's a map. Uh, so Israel, we, we, when you look at Israel, always just right away see where's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So the Sea of Galilee is right here. Dead Sea's down here. That kind of fits on you know, your mind what you're looking at. The Jordan River. Runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is right at the tip of the Dead Sea, but a few miles inland. Okay? Oops, I touched it. Hebron is down here south of Jerusalem. (coughs) And Mamre would be right next to Hebron. And so it's south of Jerusalem, kind of in this area near the Dead Sea, which is pretty barren. There's obviously some trees around, but it's not lush and green. It's kind of in a hilly, it says central ridge region. So there's kind of central hills there. Right? That's where Abraham, that's his home base. That's where he lives, and it's kind of second. Alright, enough about trees. Let's get into the more important things. So Karen asked this great question: Is it really God? And how do we know? Alright, let's keep going. So verses three to eight. He said, so Abraham said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under the stream. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do what you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sands of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. This is what we hear next. The next question I have is, did Abraham know that God was visiting him? I don't think so. Not yet. No. Yes. So, this, it all hinges on one word. What word does it hinge on? Lord. My Lord. The word Lord. If you look at verse 3, so my translation says, that you, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord. It's not capitalized. And so, do you notice, my Bible does not have Lord capitalized, but then it has a footnote, where it does capitalize it, and this is just a reminder that the word Lord... Is just a common word that could be used for any number of different people. Okay? Just the word Lord. So maybe in English we'd we'd use like the word Sir, only it's probably a little more powerful than the word Sir. But you think in Old England there were lords and ladies, right? You'd say, my Lord, you're talking to them. And so it was the same in Hebrew that you see the word Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean God. It's only from the context that the word Lord means God. So, my Bible translation doesn't capitalize, L, on Lord. And I think most people would say, it doesn't seem like Abraham knows that this is God. At least not yet. It's a sign of respect. And so instead of thinking, oh, Abraham knows that this is God, look at what he does. This is Abraham having visitors at his house. And when Abraham has visitors at his house... What does he do? He does everything for him. All right, and so here we seem to get a picture of what ancient hospitality was like. And so Abraham and his household, they're just living in tents, and these three men come, almost seems like specifically to them, and the moment that they come, Abraham springs into action. What are different aspects of ancient hospitality shown by Abraham? He washes their feet. I know that immediately makes me think of somebody else. Jesus. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Abraham made sure, well, we're going to wash your feet. They had some kind of sandals on that were dusty and dirty. washes their feet. What else? Food. What kinds of food? He doesn't just open the refrigerator and say, well, we had pizza last night. Here's a little. We got some frozen pizza left over if you want some. Get Sarah and said, you got to make some bread. Okay, now to make bread, how long does that take? Oh, no. Hours. So it's, you got to stay, you're staying. Right okay, it's not well, hey, i got 15 minutes, let's just chat for a little bit, it's, we're going to sit here and wait for bread to bake and what else does he get? <laughs> he gets his, his calf and now, remember in the Bible this idea of, of a calf or a fat calf, this is like This is like a wedding banquet. This is what you say for the most special occasions. And for Abraham, the most special occasion was having three (laughs) random people show up at his house. And so he gets the fattened calf and he gives it to his servants. he got to prepare this. We're going to have a big feast. And once all the food is ready, what does Abraham do? you notice what he does? He stands, he, stands stands he stands and waits on them. He doesn't eat with them. No. Alright, so Abraham doesn't, you know, sit down, or remember sometimes they, they recline, they lay down, but he doesn't lay down to eat with them. <coughs> he stands there, right, ready to refill the drinks, ready to get the dessert when it's all set, and he serves them, and right, it seems like Abraham's doing all of this out of a sign of hospitality. He's that excited to have people visit him. He's all kind of cool. Can't remember how old is he? Ninety. He's a ninety-nine year old man who's got this huge household, and he doesn't, you know, keep watching the football game and send one of his servants <laughs> to do all this. He drops everything and he serves them. Right? Isn't this how you I, <clears throat> I mean I eat back then, eat what, twice a day? So it said, yeah, what time is it? It said in verse one that it was at the heat of the day. So probably in the afternoon, early afternoon, and they're there throughout the day, and maybe this big meal then is about at at you know sundown. So this is this big thing, all all because some strangers show up. And it's certainly yeah, he's got this big tree of memory right there where he can serve them under the tree. Good. So maybe one thing for us to ask is, should we do this too? Is this kind of hospitality something that God wants his people to show? And notice some of the things that the Bible says. I've got these verses printed out on your sheet. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And so Hebrews, is just toward the end of the New Testament, it says, don't, don't forget to show hospitality to even the people you don't know. They might be an angel. Okay, What story from the Bible do people usually think this is talking about? This one. This one this one. So if you were to read a commentary in Hebrews 13, verse 2, it would say, you know, this is probably talking about Abraham and his hospitality to those people who came to visit him, right? To to be kind to everybody. That's always the Bible's message. But this idea to show hospitality to other people, uh, maybe you'll get to host a stranger uh, who's an angel. That'd be kind of a cool thing. Another verse that came to my mind is in Matthew chapter 25. This is in Jesus talking about judgment day. And he says he's going to come back and separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep are going to be taken into heaven and Jesus is going to say to them, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So what kind of things does Jesus point out as evidence of believers' faith? When believers have faith in Jesus. What kind of things do they do? Yeah. Help Just other simple things of helping other people. When you give food to someone. Jesus said it's like giving food to me. Right? When you give a cup of water to someone. It's like giving something to me. Right? So this idea of Christians showing the hospitality to people, and even Christians showing kindness to people, even people who aren't part of your family or people that you don't know, this is something that we hear about all through the Bible. And Abraham's a great example of that. But does this mean that every person who knocks on your door, you need to invite them in and cook a big meal for them? And stop whatever you're doing? Not this thing. <laughs> so, first we need to be too quick, we shouldn't be, let's start that over, we have to be careful not to say, well of course I never do that, because showing kindness is something that's good, even in the Bible though, there are, there are some warnings, so 2nd John, that's his little book at the end of the New Testament, just has one chapter. It says this, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. And so in this context, of it's really good to be welcoming and to show hospitality to people. The Bible says, if somebody comes to you and is sharing false teachings, what should you do? Slam
1: the door. <laughs> I don't know if it
0: said slam the door, but it said, don't take them into your house. And don't, don't welcome them. Okay, and so it's the Bible, like always. It, it's, it's just strong things, but it's very nuanced in what it says. And so Christians look for opportunities to be kind and show hospitality but if someone is going around spreading lies about Jesus or trying to lead people away from God, don't welcome that person. Don't invite that person in. I think at one time in a different church where I was serving, I was visiting somebody at their house. They weren't a member of our church, but they came a few times and just was talking to them. And they mentioned how, oh, you know, of course, whenever the Jehovah's Witnesses come, I always invite them in and listen to everything they say. And I said, why? Well, why do you invite them in and listen to everything he's saying? He says, well that's what the Bible tells me to do. So if somebody comes to my house, whatever it is, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to let them come in, I'm going to listen to whatever they say. And know, it's like, what do you, kind of like my, my heart hurt a little bit, they are saying, like, well you are a really nice person, and you're really trying to be a nice person, and that's good, and you invite me in, and you're listening to what I'm saying, and that's a really good thing, but you can't, you can't listen to what everybody says. And so being kind and being hospitable, it doesn't mean welcoming people who are going to try to lead you away from God. Okay, and so showing hospitality. If a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on your door, I hope that you're kind to them, right? But I also hope that you don't listen to everything that they say, all right? And so both things are true. I got one in the past week in the mail. at said, "Our neighbor, where my neighbor is supposed to be." Mm-hmm. And I opened it up. I said, "What's this?" And it's a uh, husband and wife uh, living. Out. We live in the neighborhood, and are you worried about what's happening in the world today? And 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 then, and then and. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the time before. A man came to my door. He a Jehovah Witness, and I finally said, "Well, I believe in a triune God. Well, I do that too. Yeah, right." <laughs> and just not get me down to, to the yeah. place of worship, and then I said, "Well, this guy said he believed in a triune God, and then he starts it So that's where God tells us to be cautious. He wants yeah. us to be kind and compassionate yeah. to people. But to, to be cautious, especially if people are sharing a false message that's against what the Bible says. Right? But maybe from the story of Abraham, we can just take this encouragement of, of showing hospitality. This is something that God's people do. And so it doesn't seem like Abraham knows that it's God. right? If you or I had showed up, he maybe would have done the same thing. He would have said, hey, stop. Not just for a little while, but for the whole rest of the day. And I'm going to fix you a banquet when it you gets your wedding and I'm doing this because this is what I want to do. It seems to have been the custom in their their neck of the woods because yeah. there are all kinds of stories about people, strangers coming into the town and, and being invited in. Yeah, and so it was part of their culture more than it is in ours, for sure. They didn't have gas stations or fast food <laughs> restaurants. Or, I mean, if you're traveling around, what are you supposed to supposed to eat? Right? You could carry your food with you, but people depended on other people, right? and kind of. some of you grew up when, in the age of hitchhikers, didn't you? And people would really make it all over the country, just doing that. Now, we don't do that anymore. Right? But this hospitality, we want to still find ways to show that, in ways that fit with, with our world today. Right? Let's keep going. It's more than just about a victory tree in hospitality. There's even more. Verses 9 to 15. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. They're in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, "Yes, yeah, she did laugh. So here we hear what this visit is really all about. Yeah. at some point, he's going to realize that it is the Lord. Okay? And maybe maybe when he makes the promise about Sarah, because Abraham's used to hearing God speak about this. So what was God's specific promise to Abraham and Sarah? Son? what? when?
1: So next year, I'm
0: going to come back at this point next year, I'm going to have a son. Right? We hear that Sarah laughed. Was it wrong for Sarah to laugh? I don't think so. Yes. How can we tell? Okay. So this is, this is an important thing in studying the Bible. Okay. So in studying the Bible, if we want to learn more about what's happening, what do we always look to? The context. The context. The context of the Bible. Okay. Now, what's that right? If you were here last week, last week we heard Abraham <laughs> laugh at God's promise. And this week we hear Sarah laugh at God's promise, and what we're going to say is that Abraham's laugh was not wrong, but Sarah's laugh was wrong. And you say, how can we say that? Because God. What did we just talk about? What's going to tell us whether their their laugh was good or bad? The context. The context. So last chapter when Abraham laughed. There was no rebuke from God. There was no Abraham, why are you laughing? And it seems like Abraham was laughing out of joy to hear, oh, it's Sarah. Sarah's going to have a baby." All of this stuff that we did with Hagar and all the heartache that I felt and all these doubts, it's really going to be Sarah. And he laughs. And he's happy. It's great. What tells us that when Sarah laughs, It's not good. God disapproves. The context. God says, "Why did Sarah laugh?" She lies that she laughed, and then she lies about it. She doesn't say, "That why I left because I was really happy and I believed your words." That wasn't true. She didn't believe his words. All right, and so there's all sorts of actions that could be good or bad, right? And what really determines whether they're good or bad is that person's motivation. So to hear God's promises and laugh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on how you're laughing. It depends on how you're laughing. Right? Haven't you ever heard the Bible say beautiful things and you just smile like you're not even trying to? You just find yourself smiling? And you say the promises of God can make us joyful and happy and laugh. Other times, it seems like God's never going to do what he says. And it seems unbelievable. And so if you laugh with doubt, that's not good. So laughing is neutral in and of itself, right? It's the attitude behind it that makes all the difference. And so it it seems in this story it was wrong for Sarah to laugh because her laugh was doubting God's promises. Huh, I can't do that. I'm too old. Okay? Just a side note, what word does she use for Abraham? She uses the same word that we had before Lord. Okay? So, just as an example, this is a word that isn't just for God. Okay? And so she uses my Lord or my Master for Abraham, just like Abraham said, my Lord to these guests who are coming. How does the next verse tell us that this is most certainly God? What does verse thirteen start with? Then the Lord said to Abraham, and what do you notice about that word Lord? How is it different? Capitalized. All capitalized, which means this is not the word for Sir or Master, this is the word for God, for Yahweh, for Jehovah. Okay, so Lord, when when the O and D are not capitalized, that's a word that could be either. When it says, Lord, all capital letters, this is the special word in Hebrew that is only used just for God. And so if there's any doubt whether this is really God, it's erased in verse 13, where it says, the one speaking to Abraham, who was one of these three men, was the Lord, which is God himself. You had verse 10. Surely I will return to you. I, I suppose that an angel could say that. But in our this In verse 10? This is when the Lord said. Alright. So part of this has to do with um, the translation. I was carrying words over. So, clearly in this dialogue between Abraham and the one speaking, it comes out very clearly. The one speaking to him is God, who's one of these three men. Well, how did Sarah, I mean, i am having a hard time trying to figure out why it was bad for her to laugh. Because if some guy showed up and Lord, I mean, I, Abraham didn't know he was the Lord for a while. She's in there baking bread, running around the house, and then some guy says, "I think you're gonna have a baby." He's like, yeah, i be laughing too. i so I think baby it's your for age. Age for her. So that's an excellent, that's actually excellent question, Alan. So again, the reason that we know that this wasn't good for her to laugh is from the reaction in the Bible. If all we hear was Sarah laughed. We could take her, But because of the reaction in the Bible, the Lord says, why did she laugh? And then she lies about it and says, I didn't laugh. And he says, yes, you did. So the only reason I'm saying we know that it was wrong is because of how the reaction happens in the Bible. That tells us it's wrong. As far as, just thinking it through, why should Sarah not have laughed in disbelief at this? Maybe what we could add is that Sarah knew God's promise. Whether she knew these three men were, were from God or not, for the last 24 years, Sarah had heard Abraham talk about God's promise. If that makes sense. Right? And so so you're right. What well, did, did Sarah in the tent know this is the Lord talking to Abraham? I don't know if we can say that. But Sarah did know the Lord has promised me a son. And so when these three men say, you know, it's going to be next year, whether she knows that those are from God or not, she knows God is going to do this. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, Sam. Forgetting that Sarah already knew the promise, mm-hmm. I would laugh too, and then she didn't lie about till after he identified himself as Yahweh. Yeah. So I was with her. <laughs> <laughs> so isn't isn't this just a good example of how? Um, you know, people's sinful behavior makes a lot of sense to us, right? So doubting a promise of God that seems unbelievable, that makes perfect sense to us, right? It does. And so I don't think any of us can judge Sarah as if we haven't done that, right? Right? I think we look at Sarah and we say, yeah, you know, I've done it too. And for God to call her out, that, yeah, that's, that's God talking to me too. Does that make sense? Okay, so I, I don't mean to say, well, Sarah was so, was so wrong to do this, I'd never do that. <laughs> no, Sarah, Sarah did what we would do. Okay? She knew God's promise. She knew she was going to have a son. It was really, really hard to believe that. And by the time she was 89, it was really hard for her to think that was really going to happen. Okay, and so she laughed in disbelief. And let's just, let's just say this. Why, why is that such a big deal? So, is anything too hard for the Lord? God says back, what makes doubt so sinful? We're sinners. We're sinners, but what, what's so wrong about doubt? It just seems like a little, I mean, God makes an unbelievable promise. Okay. like, what? Well, it's a lack of faith. Yeah. All right, and so what makes doubt so dangerous is that doubt is the opposite of the most important thing. Yeah. And for us as Christians, what's the most important thing in our lives? Faith in, Jesus. faith in Jesus, and doubt is the opposite of that. And so doubt is the most natural feeling in the world, right? Somebody says something, you can go, oh, I don't think that's going to happen, right? And yet the Bible points out, doubt when it comes to God, this is a dangerous thing, because doubt is the opposite of faith, and we live our lives by faith, so, this phrase from God, it's the start of verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is a phrase. And the answer is no. Good. I'm glad you answered. The answer is no. <laughs> Nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's a phrase that shows up worded differently each time, but at different points in the Bible, talking about really important things. So, I tell, I tell you to look up these three verses. Because in each of these three verses, you're going to find this same phrase. Word of difference. It's not going to be the exact same words, but this idea, God can do everything. Right? I want you to actually do this on your own. We'll take a couple minutes. Look up these three places, and then just write down, what is it that seems impossible that's not impossible for God? Understand? So for Sarah, it was an 89-year-old lady having a baby. This is impossible. But not for God. Look up these three. Maybe you want to start with the ones in Luke or Matthew, because they're easier to find. That's fine. But take a couple minutes. Look up each one. What is something that just seems impossible, but it's not impossible for God? I'll give you a couple minutes to do that. You can talk to people too, that's okay. All right. Good to see you looking through the Bible. Maybe they make it to, to all three places. That's okay. Thanks for trying to look some of them up. So here's three other places where we hear something like this phrase, that nothing's too hard for God, or God has power to do everything. What are the different places that's used? Did somebody look up Jeremiah 32, 17? Denise? Um, that God made the heavens and the earth. Yes. God created the world. It seems impossible, right? And it'd be impossible for anybody other than God. God made the world. Right? How about Luke 1:34 to 37? Virgin, virgin. Virgin. The virgin birth of Jesus. So the idea that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. Wow. So how can, how can a lady give birth to a child without a man? It's impossible. But nothing's impossible with God. And the last one, Matthew 19. The salvation of legitimately any single person. How can anybody be saved? We had the story of the rich young man. It seems to the disciple he's not going to be saved on his own. And they say, who can be saved? Well, with people, this is impossible. But now with God, all things are possible with God. It's great to see how that that little phrase shows up again and again. Sarah having a baby. Impossible. But now with God creation of the world. It seems impossible. Not with God. Jesus' miraculous birth. Not impossible for God. You and I being saved. God can do it. Right? You see that verse show up over and over again. That leads us to, this is something that we can, we can use when we face situations that just seem like there's no way out. So I just put three on your page, and you can probably think of some on your own, but... If you or a loved one are sick with cancer, and there can just be this feeling of, oh, it's never going to work. It's never going to work out. And what does God promise you? Nothing's too hard for Him. Nothing's too hard for Him. So that means God has the power to heal cancer here in this world. And sometimes He does, in miraculous ways. Or, what's the other option? God has the power to take someone to heaven and to heal them perfectly and completely forever. Nothing's possible. Im- nothing's impossible. Let me make sure I say that the right way. <laughs> Nothing is impossible for God. Alright? If you're anxious about the future of the world, then no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. Right. There's a lot of uncertain things. But there's one thing that is certain, and it's God and His promises. And so maybe spend a little less time thinking about all the uncertain things. I can say He's got it all in His hands. God's got it all in His hands. Spend more time with God and His Word. All right, are you filled with big dreams for your life? What about that one? God, uh, all things are possible. Yeah. Is it good to have big dreams for your life? Yeah, I guess we should be careful. Not that, well, as a Christian, everything's awful. just just think everything's going to be up. Maybe. There's a lot of hard things in life, but if somebody says, you know what, I I think God might be able to use me to do this. What would the Bible say? Go and do it. Do it to the very best of your ability, to the glory of God. Right? God can do even bigger things than you could ever imagine. So if God provides an opportunity or gives you an ability or skill, go and do it and use it for the glory of God. There's a part of of Jeremiah that talks about uh, outstretched arm. There's another verse that talks about uh, is God's arm too short? Mm -hmm. And I always think about that because he can reach to the farthest, farthest. Excellent. So one way the Bible states the same point is that God's arm is not too short. You just think, if you need help, and someone reaching out, and oh, they can't quite reach me. Their arm is too short. But not God's. God's arm can just stretch and stretch and stretch. Good point. Let's go on. We're going to read the next section, too. We've got a little time left. So after these three visitors come, they actually stick around, and they go for a walk with Abraham. So Abraham's going to go for a little walk with these three visitors. One of them is the Lord, the other two are angels. So verse 16 to 33, I'm just going to read the whole section. It all fits together. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised for him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. We're gonna stop there. I said we're gonna read through the whole thing. I wasn't uh, done. I'm sorry. So we'll stop right there. And here's the context. We're gonna the rest of it. We'll read all together. We hear about these three men, the Lord, and these angels are gonna go down towards Sodom. And we've already heard something about Sodom. If you just look back at Genesis 13, verse 13, what have we already heard? about the city of Sodom he said it was full of wicked people and so the wickedness of Sodom somehow is just well known everybody knows how wicked and sinful the city of Sodom is and that's where these three men are going to go next they're going to go to Sodom and then God it's interesting he talks to himself and he says you know should I keep hiding from Abraham what I'm going to do no I won't going hide it from Abraham If I'm going to do all these great things for Abraham, then I should share with him what I'm going to do next. And he tells Abraham that the outcry against Sodom has become great. And we hear about this in a different place. Not against Sodom, but this outcry. If somebody could go back even further. Same book. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, What's the outcry that goes out? It says that the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. So remember, Abel was the one who was killed by his brother. And it says the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. And so when we hear that, there's this outcry against Sodom. It seems like this must have been God hears the voices of his people who are suffering because of sin. And so this outcry against Sodom, just the way the Bible explains it, maybe the best way to understand it would be that when believers in God saw what it was like in Sodom, they were crying out to God over and over again, God, why is this allowed? Why is this happening? Why don't you do something? And God says, the outcry, it's gotten so great, I'm going to go see I'm going to go down and see if it's really what people say it is. Right? And that leads us into what the rest of the story is all about, which is Abraham's prayer. So now I'll read the whole rest. 22 to 33. Genesis eighteen twenty-two. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in a city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, who I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord... What if only 20 can be found? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. This is just a cool story from God's word. Abraham's prayer. And what you notice immediately is that Abraham doesn't just pray one time. Did you keep track? How many different times does he go to God? Six times. Six times he prays to God. And each time he's lowering the number, right? God, if there's 50, if there's 45, if there's 46 six times, he prays to God. Right? Now, just, just to get this back in our minds, why why might Abraham have been Very concerned about some. So his nephew Lot lived there. But what's interesting is that Abraham doesn't appeal to Lot at all in his prayer. In his prayer, whom is Abraham concerned about? Not everybody. All believers. The righteous people. And so he doesn't say, God, just save Lot. He's my nephew. He says, no, Lord, save the righteous people. Whatever righteous people there are. And if Lot's one of them, then Lot's two. But whatever righteous people there are, say them. So Abraham prays these six times. I think we can learn a lot from Abraham's prayer. What would be adjectives that you could use to describe Abraham's prayer? Persistence. Good, that's one. I think I have six blanks. That means you have to think of six words. That's the rule. Trusting. Trusting. Bold, bargaining, Bargaining. humble, Humble. constant, I think you listed six, concern, Concern. okay, so in Abraham's prayer what makes it great is you see this, this combination of faith and boldness at the same time, of humility and of courage. And God, I don't deserve to pray to you. I don't deserve to pray to you at all. But you let me. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it boldly. Right? Humbly and boldly at the same time. Those words don't seem to go together, but they do. Okay? Faithfully and courageously at the same time, he just keeps on praying. Right? And these are all adjectives that God says we can apply to our prayers too. When you pray to God, hopefully you pray humbly. Say, God, I only come to you because of Jesus, because he saved me. But I hope that you pray boldly. Okay, don't ever think to yourself, oh, I can't ask God that. Don't ever think to yourself, oh, that's too much. Don't ever think, well, i prayed too many times. Right, the Bible never, never says it's impossible. Let's keep on going. On the flip side, what are some adjectives you could use to describe the Lord's response? Patient. Patient. <coughs> Compassionate. I'm willing to listen. Agreeable. I'm willing to listen. Right? And so what makes this story so great is on both sides, we, we see a, a humble believer's attitude in prayer, and we also see God's response to that prayer. Right? To, you know, if I were God, after like the second one, I'd say, all right, amen, just, just stop. All right? I got, I got it. All right? Don't worry about it. You know, I maybe think of when my kids ask me for the same thing over and over again. I just say, stop asking. Don't ask anymore. He doesn't say that. All right? He, he seems to enjoy it. All right? Just keep it coming, amen. Just keep on praying. And I'm going to listen. And I'm going to be patient. And I'm going to do what's best. And this is God's promise to us. It's meant to encourage our prayers. Dan? What's well, really sad is really Yeah, why do you have to always focus on the sad part? Yeah. <laughs> it is sad that we know that there weren't actually ten people there. That's the whole next chapter. is how Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed. But let's save that for next week. And the point is, God heard Abraham's prayer, He, he absolutely did. We don't have time today, but if you look, the last thing on your sheet encourages you to read Luke chapter 11. And so that would be a great thing for you to do at home, thinking about prayer. This is where Jesus talks about prayer. And as Jesus talks about prayer, he teaches the Lord's Prayer, and then he tells some little parables, little stories, that teach us to pray just like Abraham did. To pray constantly, not giving up. To pray boldly, knowing that God is our Heavenly Father. And to pray, knowing that God's going to do what's best for us. So to get some more encouragement with prayer, you can read Luke eleven one to thirteen. And one last thing, uh, something I was reading this week reminded me of something very important with the Bible. When, when we study the Bible, we often ask ourselves, "What is it saying?" Right? So we want to know what is it saying. Lots of these questions are, "What is the Bible saying?" But the Bible isn't just something that we're supposed to understand. The Bible doesn't just say things. The Bible does things. You ever thought about that? Yeah. The Bible doesn't just say, say things. The Bible does things. And so when you read the Bible, you start with, what is the Bible saying here? Well, it's saying that Abraham prayed his prayer to God, and God listened. what so it's saying. But you should also ask yourself, when you read the Bible, what is the Bible doing. So if you read the story about Abraham and his prayer and God's patient answer, we got what it's saying. What is the Bible doing? And there's maybe not one right answer. What the Bible's doing is the Bible is motivating us to pray. Can you see that? It's not just saying, look at how Abraham prayed. It's saying, you can do this. You go and pray, just like Abraham did. Boldly and trustingly and humbly. This is what the Bible does. Does that make sense? This has been a helpful thing to me to keep in my mind. Not just what is it saying, but what is it doing. So you walk away from today, not just Abraham said a good prayer. But you can walk away from today saying, God encourages me to do that same thing. Because of Jesus, I can take every concern and worry to God over and over again. I know he hears and I know he listens. This is, this is a wonderful thing. If the Bible does. So let's do that. Let's say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in your word, you, you show us how Abraham prayed to you boldly and humbly all at the same time. And you encourage us to, to do the same thing. When your son Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, we can pray to you as boldly and confidently as children talk to their parents. Heavenly Father, each one of us, on our hearts and minds, we have things that weigh us down today. Lord, instead of hiding those, instead of thinking that there's there's nothing that can be done, help us to take all of those worries and doubts to you, just like Abraham did. Help us to bring them to you, not just one time, but over and over again help us to bring them to you, not, not filled with doubt, but trusting that you're going to hear us and you're going to do whatever it is that's best for us and the people in our lives. Do our thanks for your love for us and help us to respond to your love by praying and trusting in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.